tonight we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. So you can turn there, Romans chapter 8. And we're talking about the, the guarantee, the promise that God makes to us of our security. Talked uh, over the last uh, several weeks, uh, the promise of fulfilled purpose in, in Ephesians and, and his constantly being with us. And, and uh, tonight we want to look at this guarantee of our security in Christ. And this is probably one of the most helpful things that we can learn as a believer when it comes to our own salvation that we can understand that, you know what, um, no matter what happens in life, uh, it doesn't, it's, ir- it's irrelevant, the circumstances, that God is faithful and that he will give us what we need to handle any trials that may come our way, because trials will come your way, right? This isn't a um, possibility, this is a fact. Uh, Jesus explained it very clearly uh, through parables and through his teachings in Matthew uh, 13, especially verses 20 and 21, he talks about affliction, he talks about persecution. Um, and when uh, a lot of times people hit those kind of things in their Christian lives and in their, their spiritual lives, they fall away from the Lord. They don't grow stronger. And he uses that. And they don't expect affliction when they come to Christ. They expect blessing and the message of prosperity gospels out there. And they don't understand how to handle it when it actually happens to them as believers. Because they didn't expect affliction. They didn't sign up for success. uh, Or they signed up for success, not suffering. Um, They really signed up for prosperity, not persecution. And so when the, the trials come in their Christian walk, they're thinking, hey, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. And a lot of times, especially in times of suffering, Satan will work overtime in our lives like he did in the life of of Peter who who describes him as a a roaring lion, right? We looked at that last Sunday, seeking whom he may devour. So it's really essential, I think, to our spiritual survival that we understand what Paul is writing for us here in this text and and what the Bible teaches about uh, trials and things like that. And and we're just going to focus on one verse tonight. We're not going to do a whole, it'd take months to get through this, and we already went through Romans, but we're just going to focus on verse 28, but I'm going to read it in its context. So I want you to follow along in your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps our helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And here's our verse for tonight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And then he continues in verse 29. He says, For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, Interesting thing of that text is notice all that's in past tense. In the mind of God. It's already done deal. We don't have to worry about it. Okay. But... We want to focus on verse 28 tonight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, 
a couple things here. Uh, this doesn't mean all things just happen to work out for good on their own. That's not how life is. You know, some people believe that. They, you know, well, it's just kind of, it's all going to work out. No, this, this is really teaching us that God providentially, in his own power, in his own sovereignty, works all things together for good, for his people according to his purpose. Not according to their purpose, according to his purpose. And a lot of people look at this verse as a great source of comfort, which it is, but I think a lot of people misunderstand what Paul is saying here and, and what the Spirit of God wants us to understand. It's misapplied a lot of times, and it's misunderstood. And so we want to spend a little time tonight looking at this. A lot of people look at this verse, and they use it kind of as this just positive approach to life and outlook on life. And, well, you know, everything's going to turn out for our happiness in the end. You know, just, just, just be happy. Don't worry, be happy. You know, just like the song says. You know? and, and that's not what this is saying at all. Uh, it really, that kind of attitude about this verse really denies, it, it minimizes the reality of suffering. It minimizes the reality of evil if you take that approach. Well, everything's just great. Everything's just happy, happy, happy in Jesus. No. As we said on Sunday, Jesus promised that we would have suffering, <laughs> that we would have persecutions, that we would have trials, that we would have tribulations in this life. He didn't say it might happen. He said it will happen. So get ready for it. And this is the same message that the Spirit of God is giving through the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know, sometimes when we read this verse, we use it in situations where, unfortunately, well-meaning Christians, I've heard well-meaning Christians use this verse you know, uh, trying to support a uh, comfort someone who maybe just lost their spouse. You know, that's kind of inappropriate. You know, their, their, their loved one dies, and your answer is, hey, you know what, God works all things together for good. That's just kind of insensitive, right? Yeah, that's that's kind of misapplying what, what Paul is saying here. I mean, we know that's true technically, but I've seen that used out of context a lot of times. People are in the throes of grief and you're trying to help and you just kind of whip out that verse, you know, well, you know, God works all things together for good for those who love him. And we, we don't want to do that because that, that doesn't really help. That, that can really hurt someone even more because in the moment of loss, that grieving person, uh, what do they need? They don't need some necessarily some verse quoted to you from Scripture. They need you to be there to listen, to support them, to hear, to pray for them. Okay, with practical help. That's the first thing they need. Uh, and a lot of times, I've seen this even with chaplains who want to be chaplains. You take them out and, and immediately they start preaching to the person you're, you're, you're called out to minister to. That's not the place for that. Okay? I mean, I, I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to share God's truth with someone, but this person's not even in the right frame of mind. You know, they've just been faced with a horrible crime or or the, they've been in a situation where death has occurred and they're in shock. And, you know, you don't need to start preaching to somebody like that because they're not really going to understand you anyway. All right. And so sometimes we just need to be, that's what we call, the, the chaplaincy really is a ministry of presence. That's what it is. It's just being there. You may be simply just getting somebody a glass of water, just sitting there holding their hand as they're crying over their loved one or whatever it might be. And the less you say sometimes is better. And you know what? It makes a major impact on people. 
You know, because a lot of times you're praying during that whole time. You're thinking, okay, Lord, I don't feel like I'm doing anything here. You know, I have a lot of stuff I want to share with this person, but right now they're not ready to receive it. And you know what? You run into that person, you meet up with that person a week later, and they're just thanking you profuse. Thank you so much. Oh, we, you did. I, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I mean, I gave you a glass of water and held your hand for two hours until the coroner came. I didn't really get to do what I wanted to do. <laughs> so you're thinking, you're walking away going, yeah, well, that was kind of a bust. But you know what? The Lord uses that and he turns it around. And so sometimes we have to make sure that we understand how we should apply this verse. And it will help us really to weather uh, trials and suffering and situations that come into our life if we understand this verse before we find out we're in the middle of a storm, just like anything else. You know, we just saw this tragic event, hurricane in, in Florida. And, you know, they knew it was coming. And so what were they doing? They were telling people, prepare, 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 right? And they had probably two weeks to prepare. Uh, but it doesn't make the tragedy any easier. But I guarantee you, the people that have their life today, maybe they lost their home, but they had the sense to listen and, and get out of there. Uh, and they have their life. They're, they're thankful. They're thankful that they listened and, and they were able to prepare and weather that storm, even though they had to go through it. And so Paul here in the context, he's really giving us encouragement. He's giving the, 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 the Christians here in Rome encouragement with the truth that sufferings in this present Christian life okay, uh, are a reality, first of all, but they're also not worthy, he says in verses 18 to 25, further up in the text, which we're not going to read, that's not even, they're not even worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us in heaven. Because this is just a moment in time. We need to keep our, our eyes fixated on that and, and our hearts tuned to that. This is, we're just here for a vapor, the Bible says. We're, we're here and gone. This world is not our home. <clears throat> like the, 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 the chorus says, we're just passing through, right? And, and you know what? Uh, we have to be reminded of that. Because if we don't, what happens is this world can just soak up our attention to the point where it looks overwhelming and there's no way there's no way that god could work and you know we become depressed we come you know just hold up in our house almost without any kind of prospects of god working at all and that's what paul was trying to prevent in their lives he also wanted to encourage them in verses 26 and 27 with the truth that the holy spirit's helping us in our weakness he's the the lord has given us the Holy Spirit that resides within us as believers, and he will help us through these trials and these tribulations and these different events that come into our lives. And he's going to help us by helping us in our prayers according to the will of God, because sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought. I think we've all been in a situation where, you know, we, we knew we had to pray, but we don't even know what to pray. We're almost just paralyzed by our grief or paralyzed by the situation we find ourselves in and it says there the spirit intercedes for us and notice this isn't talking about tongues uh, you know some people say oh this is the gift of tongues." no it's not because it says right there that he says uh, he, he intercedes for us in verse 26 with groanings too deep for words and that doesn't mean actual words. That just means any kind of sound. It's just too when the Spirit intercedes for us, it's not something you can vocalize is what the meaning is. And so it's not referring to the gift of language, as we would call it. The charismatics call it the gift of tongues. But it does raise this question that Paul kind of spells this out for him. And then we come to verse 28. 
you know, if the Spirit is praying for the saints according to the will of God, and, and all, he's done all this work for us, then, then why do we have to suffer? Why do we have to go through what we go through? Why are we persecuted? Sometimes even to death in the Scriptures. Um, can such suffering even be part of God's will? Dare we say that? And Paul basically is affirming this when he comes to verse 28. And that's why he tells them, we know that for those who love God, all things work together according to his purpose, uh, for good according to his purpose. And what's interesting, when we read through that text, I don't know if you noticed this, but if you look at verse 26, it says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You see that? And then you come down to verse 28. He says, but we do know this. We do know that what? God can work all these things out together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. See, in our weaknesses, we don't often know how to pray. But you know what? We can know that even in such times that come into our lives, such dark times, that God, our sovereign God, is working all things, good, bad, ugly, everything together for his ultimate good. And that's what Paul explains to us. Uh, one commentator, uh, uh, Douglas Moo, says it this way. He, he kind of paraphrases this 28 to 30, and he says, he says this, We know that all things are working for good for those of us who love God. And we know this is so because we who love God are also those who have been summoned by God or called by God to enter into a relationship with him. A summons that is in accordance with God's purpose to mold us into the image of Christ and to glorify us. That's really what those verses are saying to us. And so for Christians, this verse really contains perhaps the most glorious promise of all Scripture, that promise that is a guarantee of our security in Christ. We don't have to worry about losing our salvation if we've come to Christ. It's, it's absolutely important that we understand that because uh, it it's, encompasses everything that involves the believer's life. And it kind of consists of four elements here. And the first one is in verse, beginning of verse 28. It says, and we know, and this is the certainty of security. The certainty of security. It doesn't say, well, we hope, or maybe, or we guess. No, it says, and we know. And in this, this, this context here, uh, Paul's not expressing his personal opinion. He's not expressing his feelings or his intuitions. But what's he doing? He's setting forth the inerrant word of God, the, the truth of God's word, as inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. So it's not his opinion. Uh, it's not Paul the man saying these things. It's, it's Paul the apostle who was called by God, who was a channel, really, of God's revelation, direct revelation, who came to Paul, and he, he passed it on to the church. And he continues, and he, he continues here to declare the truth he has received from the Holy Spirit. And so he therefore asserts that God's own authority, by God's own authority, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know. We know. We can count it for sure. And, and that phrase, we know, carries the, the idea, the meaning that we can know. And why do I say that? Because that's literally what it means. We can know this. 
The sad thing is a lot of believers don't know this. They're not assured of this, uh, tragically. And there's a lot of people today who refuse to believe that God guarantees the believer's eternal security. There's a lot of people today that say, well, no, you know, you can lose your salvation or you can turn your back on God and, you know, you can overrule God. Well, what are they talking about? God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. Belief in salvation by a sovereign God alone leads to this confidence, leads to the confidence that salvation is secure because God is God alone who is responsible for our salvation. It's not us. And guess what? God is God. He cannot fail. So if you repented of your sins, you put your faith and trust in Christ and he's saved you, he's transformed you, you know what? You're saved, period. There's no way that anything can ever interfere with that. You can know that for sure. And Paul is saying here that the the truth of eternal security is clearly revealed by God to us. We can know. We don't have to guess about it. All believers are able with certainty to know the comfort, the hope, and the reality if they just simply take God's word at its face value. Now, when we get in trouble is, well, do we always feel like we're saved? (laughs) No, right? Sometimes doubt enters into our Christian life. But what do we do when we do that? Do we listen to that? No, we have to go back to God's word and say, wait a minute, if God saved me, I can't unsave myself. I'm secure in Christ. We have to be reminded of that. God's child need never fear being cast out of his heavenly father's house or fear of losing his citizenship that is guaranteed in the eternal kingdom of righteousness. We don't have to fear that. That's why on Sunday mornings when we're talking about the idea of going through this this up-and-coming rapture and the day of the Lord and and how we're taking a pretty hard stance to say that's just not for the believer, period. We're going to be raptured out of here because the day of the Lord has to do with fire and judgment and, and God's children are not subject to such. It would be heretical to to believe that they were. That they would have to face God's wrath here on earth. I mean, what did Christ die for then? Right? Where's their hope in that? And we've talked about that. And so he, he says here, I want you to first of all understand that you can know this. You can have certainty in your security. And you can have that today. If you haven't trusted Christ, you can cry out to him even now and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I, I need to have my sins forgiven. I come to you afresh and save me. And you can know. What also speaks of the extent, not just the certainty of it, but the extent of the security. And look at what he says in verse 28. He says, Not just that we can know, but we can know that what? God causes all things to work together there for good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, is the way the ESV has it. See, the extent of the believer's security is as limitless as its certainty is absolute. There's no ending to it. You can't say, well, God will save you up to this point, but then he won't save you anymore. No, God saves completely. And the reason we know that is because who does it? It says, and we know that for those who, what, love God. It's God that's at work here. It's not us. 
God is the one who's causing all these things to work together for good for his children. And as with every other element of the believer's security, it's God who is guaranteeing it. So if you're going to say, well, I don't believe in that, then you're going to have to take it up with God, not me. Because he's the one that's stating this. It's he who causes everything in the believer's life to eventually result in blessing. The good, the bad, whatever, the indifferent. And Paul emphasizes that God himself brings about the good that comes to his people. It doesn't just happen. It's not just karma. All right? When we are blessed, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Even as Christians, sometimes we'll say this to one another. You know, maybe somebody's going for a job interview. What do we say? Hey, well, good luck. That's not really a proper thing for a Christian to say. Do we believe in luck? What is luck? Luck is a random thing, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe you win the lottery. Well, good luck. Well, no. We don't believe we live our lives that way. We live our hand under the providential care of God. If we get the job, then guess what? It's not luck. God meant you to have the job. And he provided that job for you. And so we need to kind of reevaluate the way we speak sometimes because the way we speak sometimes kind of reveals what's going on in our heart. And, uh, you know, I never understood. When I was in a youth, as a youth pastor, we'd be in these churches and we'd have things called potlucks. <laughs> and I made fun of it one time. And so then they started calling, well, we'll call it, you know, providential pots. <laughs> you know, I thought, well, that's kind of weird too. But anyway, you know, and I get the idea, right? But the idea of, of luck and, and that kind of thing, things just happening in our lives at random, that has no place in the, in, the, in the life of a believer. And Paul is saying here that everything that happens in our life, everything is, is as a result of God allowing it to happen. Um, and so this, this promise doesn't operate, though, um, through kind of in, impersonal just statements, but it really requires divine action to make this promise happen in our lives. It's, it's carried out by a direct, personal, gracious work of His divine Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the writer says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's a consequence of, of what God is doing in our hearts. And we already saw that the Spirit himself intercedes, and, and he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It's God doing these things. It's not just ourselves. It's not random chance. And so we have to understand, first of all, it's God. But then he says, God causes all things, right, at the result of God's hand in our life, all things. And, and that phrase, all things, is it's completely comprehensive. It covers everything. There's no qualifications. There's no limits. Well, it can't mean everything. Yes, it means everything. All things. Neither this verse nor its context allow for any kind of restrictions when you come to that phrase or any kind of conditions. All things is inclusive in the fullest possible sense. And he kind of concludes that down in verse 39 of, of Romans 8. If you just jump down, he says there in, in verse uh, 
the end of verse 39, nothing, right, is able to separate us. Nothing is able to separate. It goes through this big list from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that's the, that's the kind of all things that we're talking about here. Paul's not saying that God prevents his children from experiencing things that can harm them. He never promises that. God never says, oh, I, I'm never going to let you be harmed. No. Rather, what he's saying here, he's attesting that the Lord takes all that he allows to happen in the life of his beloved children, even the worst things, even the bad things, even the horrible things, and what does he do? He turns those things ultimately into blessings. And you can go through example and example and example all day long. You know, I remember reading a story of a family. They were on a, a, a trip home, I think, on the freeway. This is years ago. Seven children, two parents, horrible wreck. All the children burned alive. The parents survived. Can you imagine living with that on your heart? And years later, someone asked them, and they said, you know what, we don't know why this happened, but you know what, you can't imagine the ministry that God opened up for us as a result of this tragedy. We've been able to minister to so many people, other families who have lost their children, and, you know, we wouldn't take it back for nothing. And I'm like, wow. Or you think of somebody like jo Joni Erickson Tata, who, you know, diving accident and became a paraplegic and was restricted to a wheelchair. Has a beautiful voice, likes to paint. She puts a paintbrush in her mouth, paints these beautiful pictures has a beautiful voice, and she just sits there in her wheelchair and sings. And she said, you know what, I wouldn't take it back for anything. And then on top of that, she gets breast cancer. She has to deal with that. She said, you know what, that opened up a whole other avenue of ministry for me. I never understood what women went through that had breast cancer because I was paralyzed and I was dealing with my issues. Now there's a whole other level of ministry that they got, and that's how she looks at it. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of sick. But you know what, that's how God works. He takes those things in our lives and he turns them around. And so Paul teaches them, teaches this throughout his, throughout his teachings. In, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, he says this in verse 21, For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, all things present, or all things to come, all things belong to you. He's, he's saying, you know what, God, you're, you're the cause here. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, 15, Paul says this, For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. It doesn't just say the good things. In verse 32, Paul asks rhetorically there, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up from us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things. No matter what our situation, no matter what our suffering, no matter what kind of persecution we're in, no matter how many times we, we fall into sin and fail and our pain and lack of faith, all those things. Our Heavenly Father will work to produce our ultimate victory and blessing. You have to believe that. And the truth that goes along with that is that nothing ultimately can work against us. That's, that's an encouraging thought. 
doesn't matter what happens in your life, you know what? God is still on your side. He, he, he's still there to, to orchestrate the outcome of whatever horrible event may come to pass. Any temporary harm that we suffer will be used for God for our benefit. And all things includes circumstances and events, by the way, that are not good, that are not beneficial in themselves, as well as those things that I would even include those things that are uh, in themselves evil and harmful and sinful. They all fall under the umbrella of all things. That's a very uh, hard message. But God causes all things to work. I'm just going to give a quick list. MacArthur says this. He says, God causes righteous things to work for our good. Uh, God's wisdom provides for our good. God's goodness, God's goodness works to the good of his children. God's faithfulness works for our good. God's word is for our good. God's holy angels work for the good of those that belong to him. God's children in and of themselves are ministers of his good to each other. Right? We see that within the church. He also says this. Evil things God can use for his good. And he breaks it down this. God uses the evil of suffering as a means of bringing good to his people. God uses the evil of temptation as a means of bringing good to his people. And even God uses even our own sins to work for his good. Do you ever think about your sins are just as evil as those of unbelievers? There's, just, there's no difference. They're, they're just as evil. But what, what's the difference? The ultimate consequence. The ultimate consequence of a believer's sin is vastly different than an unbeliever's sin. Because Christ paid for our sins. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Past, present, future. They've been fully paid for by the, the, the Savior. And so when you stop and think about, wow, does that mean that we should go out and sin? No. Romans answers that. You know, you know, just because the grace of God abounds, it doesn't mean you go out and sin so that God can use more grace in your life. That would be ridiculous. But it, it's really a picture of how vast these all things are. It includes all those things that he's going to somehow, and then it says work together is the next phrase I want to focus on. The original Greek word here, we get the word synergism from in the English language. Everything's working together. And that's what he's saying here. All these things, the good, the bad, the blessings, the sins, the trials, the tribulations, everything, all these various elements, God is working together to, pro to produce an effect greater and often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. In other words, without the blessing and without the sin, you would have a different outcome. 
And God says, no, I'm going to take all these things and put them together. And some of these things that I'm putting together are nasty things. They're not good things. And if you took it by itself, it would be horrible in God's sight. Sin is always horrible in God's sight. But somehow, under the power of God, he takes things, good, bad, and he, he synergistically molds them together for the outcome that is a positive, a net positive, a blessing in our lives. I mean, think of it this way. In the physical world, you can take two harmful chemicals and produce something that's extremely beneficial. If you take two chemicals and you take them by themselves, one or the other, it'd probably kill you. But you put them together, the example is basically ordinary table salt. It's composed of two poisons, sodium and chlorine. Right? But you put it together, and what happens? It turns into table salt. You can put it on your food. Now, it's not saying here that these things in and of themselves work together to produce good. It's God doing it. Okay, it's God that's at work behind this. And that's the thing. They work together. Everything works together under God's power. They work together for good. And, and Paul made it clear, very clear earlier, it's by the providential power and will of God. It's not some natural thing that happens. It's not, you know, you're not just taking sin and blessing and mixing it in a little glass and going, oh, look at what I created. No, without God, none of this happens. And it's him that causes all these events, circumstances, to work together for good for the believers. In Psalm 25.10, David testifies to this. He says, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. No matter what road you're on, no matter what path you take, the Lord somehow will turn it into a way of loving kindness and truth. It may come through chastisement, as we talked about on Sunday. It may come through the Lord disciplining us. But you know what? In the end, it's going to lead to a way that's filled with loving kindness and truth. And Paul likely has in mind our, our good during this present life, as well as what's coming down the road in the future for us. And when you think of the truth that no matter what happens in our lives as God's children... The providence of God uses it for our good well-being here temporarily on earth as well as our eternal benefit. It has a twofold application. Sometimes he's saving us from tragedies. Sometimes he's sending us through tragedies. But sometimes, all the time, he's always doing it to draw us closer to him. He's always doing it to draw us closer to him. You think of the, the Israelites in the Old Testament when they were in the Egyptian bondage, right? God continually provided for their well-being as they faced these, these harsh sufferings and obstacles in the Sinai, Sinai Desert. And Moses proclaimed to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he said this, God led you through the great and the terrible wilderness with his fiery serpents and scorpions. He didn't take them away. They had to go through this. And thirsty ground where there was no water, he brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, 
that he might humble you and that he might test you. Why? To do good for you in the end. God always, always has our ultimate good in mind. And it may be that we have to put up with some horrible times in the wilderness and some fiery serpents and scorpions. That doesn't sound fun. Uh, going with no water, okay, eating manna, which was this tasteless stuff that God provided for them that they got sick of real quick. But you know what? It was all for their good, ultimately. The Lord didn't lead his people through 40 years of difficulty and hardship to bring them evil. That wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to what? Bring them good. To bless them. And that good sometimes has to come by way of divine discipline, by refining, right? That's the whole sanctification process we're in. God is making us more like Christ each and every day. God often delays the, the temporal as well as the ultimate good that he promises. Sometimes it's, we're not going to see it right away. Sometimes we pray for things for years and we never see the prayer answered. Sometimes we can get very frustrated. We can get very, grow very weary. Um, Jeremiah 25, 5-7, Jeremiah declared this, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again into this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. What is God saying? He's like, yeah, it, it looks bad right now, but it, it's not going to end bad. I'm going to work this out. In his sovereign graciousness, the Lord used these painful, frustrating captivities that Israel was going, for, going through, but he used them to refine his own people, to make them stronger. And the process obviously was slow. <laughs> I mean, you think they'd get the, the message right after 40 years, right? I mean, it took 40 years for this process to take place. I mean, can you imagine saying, hey, you know what? Yeah, one day God's going to bless you about 40 years from now. That's when you're going to realize all this stuff you're doing for the Lord. And finally, he's going to bless you. See, we, we don't want that. When do we want it? We want it now. You know, you pray for something. Come on, God, what are you waiting for? We want, we want to see it right now. And that's why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, he writes this, Therefore we do not lose heart. <laughs> but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension, beyond all comparison." When you think of that verse, do not lose heart. That's really what, what, what he wants us to, to, to grasp from this. That's the encouragement we can get when we read a verse like Romans 8.28 that's a promise to us as his, his children. Even when our outward circumstances are dire, perhaps especially when they're dire and hopeless, and our, 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 from our perspective at least, what does God do? God is purifying. He's renewing us. He's redeeming 
the inner beings preparing us for glorification and the ultimate good that he's promised us. And we will see it come to pass. So that's the extent of the security, the certainty of security. Well, who, who, who receives this? Who are the recipients of this? Well, he tells us there, this isn't just a general promise. You know, this doesn't apply to everybody. Not everybody gets the trophy, right? I mean, that's how we live today. You know, oh, everybody on the team, even the team that loses, they get a trophy too. That's not reality. That's the problem with our society today. That's why we have kids that are just the way they are. There's no reality to it. Well, who, who does this security, who are the recipients of this? First of all, those who love God, it says in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those that love God. He describes the recipients of eternity, eternal security, as those who love God. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we throw that term out, love God, what does that mean? Um, I think when you want to characterize somebody who's a true believer in Christ, there's nothing, there's no other way clearer than to see in their lives and in their heart a genuine love for God. When you see that in somebody's life, a genuine love and respect for God. Uh, because redeemed people love the gracious God who saved them. That's just matter of fact. I mean, that's just the way it is. And because of their depraved, sinful natures, the unredeemed, what do they do? Do they love God? The Bible doesn't say so. No, it says they hate God. <laughs> even though they argue to the contrary. I mean, when God made his covenant with Israel through Moses, he made the distinction pretty clear between those who love him and those who what? Hate him. You know, it goes back to the whole idea of being in the light or being in the dark. You're not, you can't be in a, the gray area. You're one or the other. Either you love God or you hate God. I mean, in the Ten Commandments, the Lord told his people, Exodus 20, he says, You shall not worship idols nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, is what? I'm a jealous God. I'll visit the iniquity of, your, of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. In other words, there's consequences to hating God. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me, and what? Keep my commandments. See, in God's sight, there's only two categories of human beings. Those who hate him and those who love him. Nothing in between. You can't have one foot in, one foot out. That's what Jesus was saying in, in Matthew 12 when he said, you know what? He who is not what, with me is what? Against me. Either you're on my team or you're not. Either you're my friend or you're my enemy. In Isaiah 56, God's redeemed include this. It says, also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. In other words, it wasn't just Israel, it was other, other folks. To minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. 
And the New Testament is equally as clear in, in 1 Corinthians 2.9. It says, just as it is written, back, he's referring to Isaiah 64.4 there. Paul reminded the Corinthians, he says, things which the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who what? Those who love him. Those who love him. And in 1 Corinthians 8.3, he says, if anyone love God, loves God, he is known by God. That's a big, a big step. James says that those who love God, believers, are promised the Lord's eternal crown of life in James 1.12. In Ephesians 6.24, Paul refers to Christians as those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. So as believers, we're, we are told and we're, we're called to emulate the love of God. Saving faith involves much, much more than simply acknowledging God. James 2.19 says that, right? Oh, you say you believe in God? Well, guess what? Guess who else believes in God? The demons. <laughs> Satan believes in God. And he trembles at the thought. True, true faith, true love for God involves surrendering your sinful self to a God of forgiveness, to a God who is offering you the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, coming to him as Lord and Savior. And how does this love work out in our lives? Well, the Bible says that if you want to truly show the Lord that you love him, you will what? Obey his commandments. You'll do what he says to do. We can't call ourselves believers and then go out and live like whatever, like the world. We need to bring all of our actions, all of our thoughts, everything into alignment with what emulates Christ. Why? Because in Christ is the, the full love of God. And so your, your love for Christ, if it's genuine, if it's real, it's not perfect. But if it's real, if it's genuine, you know what? You're, you're not going to be out there chasing sin 24-7. Doesn't mean you'll never sin. I'm not saying that. We're, none of us are perfect, like I just said. But we're, we're in a state of growth, right? We want to grow more like Christ each and every day. And we all struggle with it because we're stuck in the sinful world with a sinful body and a sinful mind and, and all this stuff is going on around us and, and it's hard. But when you begin to understand that, you know what? Wait a minute. I know I love God because he saved me. So I want to do everything I can to obey his word. And then you can pray like Paul to the Philippians in, in, in Philippians 1.9. He says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. See, the, the love of God, the love we have for God is not just a cheap term you can throw around. If you're going to say you love God, I mean, my, my answer to you is show me. Show me. So their love for Christ was genuine. It wasn't perfect, but it was genuine. Well, what's the other qualification here? Those who love God, and then it says those who are called. <laughs> those who are called. The recipients of eternal security are those who are called. And just as love originates with God, we don't just dream love up out of the thin air. It comes from God. So does our calling. Our calling into 
our heavenly family. The initiative and the provision for salvation, that's all God. We had nothing to do with it. We weren't even around when God set his love upon us. It says it was done before the foundation of the world. And in our fallen, sinful state, the only thing we're capable of doing is hating God. We are his enemies. We are, Ephesians says, children of his wrath. But what happened? God called us. When Jesus said that many are called in Matthew 22, verse 14, but few are chosen, he was referring to the gospel's external call to men to believe in him. In the history of the church, nothing is more obvious than the fact that most most people who receive this call do not accept it. There's not going to be a lot of people in heaven, unfortunately. Because the Bible says is what? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. So, you know, Jesus himself said, yeah, it's not going to be a, uh, a good turnout. But the important thing is the people that are there are going to be called by God. They're going to be there because God called them to be there. The terms called and calling are used in different sense referring to God's sovereignty to the regenerating work of God in a believer's life you could say and it brings new life into that into that person's being there's an effectual call of God that really talks about those who are called are chosen and redeemed by God and ultimately what happens they're glorified that's what he's talking about there in verses 29 to 28, or 29 to 30, where he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We don't see our glorification as of yet, but in God's mind, it's already done. That's how secure we are. That's how that promise is, is really fleshed out we can be assured of that because god thinks of it as past tense believers have never been called on the basis of their works that's not the that's not the reason god calls them he they've never been called even on the the basis of their own purposes they are securely predestined by god to be his children to be conformed to the image of his son. Hebrews 11 is very clear. It basically says faith in God has always been the only way of redemption. Believers aren't saved on the basis of who they are. They're not saved on what they've done. They're only saved solely on the basis of who God is and what he has done for them. And if you understand that, that's, that's the gift of salvation. 2 Timothy 1.9 says we are redeemed according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It's God's doing. God didn't look down from heaven and go, oh, look at Steve. He, he can play the piano. I need him on my team. I, I want him to do this. Oh, he'd be willing. No. That's why the Bible says He did all that before the foundation of the world. You weren't even here when God picked you to be on His team. 
It operates completely according to God's will and by his power. The gospel never fails to accomplish and secure its work of salvation in those who believe. We saw that when we went through 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Turn over just to Romans 9. 9 Romans 9, speaking of God's sovereign choice in this whole matter, because Paul uses the illustration of Jacob and Esau. And he's illustrating God's effectual call, which is, we would say, his sovereign call. And it says there in verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born, they weren't even born yet. They didn't do anything wrong. No, they, they didn't come out of the womb yet. He says, and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's own purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Wow. I don't know about you, but I can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. That doesn't seem fair. That seems unjust. Talk about social justice. I mean, that's, you know, I, but who is God? We have to go back, well, who is God? God's perfect. God's holy. He, he, he couldn't do something that's unjust. He couldn't do something that's unholy. He couldn't do something even that's, that's immoral. But at the same time, human faith is imperative for salvation. God's gracious initiative of salvation is very imperative but we also have to respond in human with our faith. You're not just saved. You know, you go to bed unsaved and you wake up the next day, you're saved. You never heard the gospel. No, that's not how it works. We're not robots. But at the same time, Jesus declared in John 6.65, no one can come to me. Hear that, no one, not, not a single person, can come to me unless, what, it has been granted him from the Father. Wow. God's in charge. We're not. That should boost our evangelism efforts in my mind. Because <laughs> guess what? If, if you go out and you share the gospel with somebody, they don't believe. That's not your problem. That's not, you, you can't make them believe. You can give them the truth. You can bring, as I say, the food to the table. You can't make them eat it. That's where a lot of evangelists have gotten a, kind of a bad name. They try to make people eat it. And it gives them a sour taste. They don't want it. They can't come to Christ unless God has granted it to them. God's choice not only precedes man's choice, but it makes man's choice possible and effective. Think about that. God's choice not only precedes, comes before man's choice, but it makes man's choice possible and effective. So when we, when I heard the gospel and it came time for the Lord to affect that change in my life and I said yes to Christ, it wasn't my doing. God was work at work. God was preceding all that. But I still had to make a profession of faith. I still had to come to Christ. I still had to repent of my sins.
And by the way, Paul was not only just called by Christ to salvation, but he was called as an apostle of Christ by the will of God, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.1. But he describes himself in Philippians 3.12 as lay hold of by Jesus Christ. Christ got a hold of me. That's what salvation is. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul addresses the believers in Corinth. He says, those who have been sanctified in Christ, saints by calling. And in verse 24 of the same chapter, he says, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. See, all believers, without exception, are called by God. Ephesians 1-11 says they've been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. You can't get around it. God's call, in its primary sense, is once and for all. But it continues until the believer is finally glorified. That's why Paul says, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, I wish we were just saved. You know, we get saved, the Holy Spirit enters us, and it's done. It's over. We're perfect. It doesn't work that way. He lets us live here on earth, on this sinful earth, and we've got to trudge it out until he calls us home. In the process, we're called to live for him. We're called to live a life of exceptional behavior above the sinful world so that people would see the light of Christ in our lives. And as we do that, he conforms us more into the image of his Son, and we're faced with trials and tribulations and blessings along the way. And it's good to know that God's taking all that under his sovereign rule, and he's molding it, and he's making it, and he's turning it into blessing. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything. And we can never forget the promise in, in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth as Jesus as Lord, and believe what? In your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it tells us, for with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Well, I just thought you said it was all of God. Yes, it is. You're not going to confess the Lord Jesus. You're not going to, you know, resulting in salvation. You're not going to be able to do that on your own. That's God's working in you. But you still have to... God draws us to himself. So when you think of your salvation, if you realize that God has called us and he has saved me, when you're feeling down and you're feeling doubtful of your salvation, you need to stop and you need to read some of these verses and say, wait a minute, it's not up to me. Anyway, God already saved me. It's a done deal. And then lastly here, the source of security he says, according to his purpose, Paul states the source of security in a, in a believer's life, the, the idea that God's working all these things together for his good of his children because that is according to his divine purpose, not our own. Things always don't work out the way we want. That's really what it literally means. They're according to his purpose. Paul expands on and clarifies the meaning of God's purpose there in verse 29 to 30. We're not going to go into all that, but it's, it's interesting because God's broader purpose is to offer salvation to what? To everybody. Yeah, he's chosen some, but you know what? That, that, that is a, 
a bold-faced offer for everyone. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever. It doesn't say that the elect believe in him. No, it says whosoever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Second Peter 3 9. The Lord doesn't desire condemnation of anyone, but he wants all to come to repentance. See, both of those things are true. You're not going to be able to put them together in, in our small little brain and say, oh, it makes perfect sense. No, it's not going to make perfect sense because God's ways are not our ways. But he definitely is at work through all this. And I'll just lead you leave you with one last verse in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Jesus said this, But as many as received him, or John wrote of Jesus, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to what? To become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And then it says this, Who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, See, there's a lot of people today that believe in this free will mentality that, oh no, I choose God. I ch-. No, it says right there. You weren't born of the blood. In other words, you can't inherit it. It doesn't matter what family, family you belong to. Um, it, it wasn't the will of the flesh. It's not the will of man. At the end of that verse, it says, but of God. That's how we become children of God. It's God's working in our lives. And so this promise, as we look at it, it it promises us ultimate guarantee, ironclad, that one day we don't have to worry about losing the salvation that we really didn't have anything to do with obtaining in the first place. And, And God will one day glorify us. He will make us completely into the image of His Son. We will be in heaven with him in the glorious state. And that's what we got to keep our mind on. That's what we got to keep our focus on. Yeah, we're going to go through trials. We're going to go through tribulations. We're going to have to face the difficulty of this world. But you know what? All that is for God's good. The good, the bad, the blessings, the sins, everything. God works it all together in his melting pot. And he said, this is ultimately my divine plan for you. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray, even now, Lord, that you would uh, help us absorb this. I know it's a lot, and, and Lord, it's overwhelming, but Lord, sometimes it's good to hear just how much control you are in, that you are sovereign over everything. And Lord, you're not just blessings come from your hand, but sometimes hardships and trials and tribulations are allowed to pass through your hands into our lives things that we don't necessarily enjoy but lord you have a purpose and father somehow you take all of this and you mix it up in your divine sovereign plan for us and you say this is what i have for you and it's ultimately for your good and lord we're thankful that our salvation doesn't rest on us it doesn't reside on us feeling like we're saved it doesn't reside on us acting like we're saved even It resides on, Lord, are we one of the elect or not? Have we responded to 
the gospel affirmatively. Some people say, well, how do I know if I'm an elect? Have you, have you responded to the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you said yes to Christ and no to yourself and trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins? That's affirming that you are one of the elect. And you will see Him take you from that point and grow you and your Holy, His Holy Spirit will reside within you. And you're not going to be perfect, but when you aren't, you'll feel conviction. You'll feel sorrow. You'll, you'll, you'll want to repent. You'll want to get rid of that sin. You'll be running from sin, not to it. And so, Father, we pray tonight that you would just uh, remind us of these things. And if anybody here who has yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that even now that they could cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Help me live for you each and every day. We pray you dismiss us tonight with your blessing and and, uh, take us safely home. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.